Hey, this is a Hakawadi production. What do you see in your mind when you think about beer? Now, forget everything you think you know about beer, because my next guest will change the way you think of this historic brew. It is, in fact, the world's fourth most consumed beverage. But according to him, it has fallen victim to powerful marketing and advertising for years, and it deserves more respect. He's the founder of two very successful beer brands. He established 961 in Beirut back in 2006, and now he's the CEO of Hawker's Beer in Australia since 2014. Please welcome my guest, Mazen Hajar. Hey Mazen, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me. So people think of beer as something that we drink while watching a football game, kind of like an adult soft drink. But you've said in a TED Talk, I believe, that there's a lot more to it than that. So what's so great about beer? Well, um, it, it's funny how beer has become commoditized over the years. And that's partially because of the big beer companies marketing it as an adult soft drink. Whereas beer is as old as human civilization itself. In fact, a lot of historians credit beer with humans leaving caves and um, becoming agrarians. Our first signs of human civilization of settlements were when we domesticated barley to make beer back in 15,000 BC. That's 17,000 years ago. So for me, beer is something quite special. It's very interlinked with human civilization. And it's especially special because it came from our part of the world. Yeah. Which part of the world exactly, specifically? So straight in the Middle East, our first traces of beer come from um, pot, pottery uh, items that we found beer stone in. And they predate even Mesopotamia. Uh, way back into the Levant area, so it's the, the you know it's somewhere between Syria, Iraq, and Lebanon. We can't really trace exactly where, but the, that that's our first traces of beer. You also talk about how um, not only is it historic, but it's also a beverage that can have a lot of complexity and that can pair with food the same way wine does. That's not how a lot of people see it, though. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there is something called the great um, grape line divide. So if you look at historically, um, if you can, you can almost split Europe south of the grape line divide. So the southern part of Europe is an area that is more uh, prone to growing grapes that is warmer in weather. So that is where wine becomes way more complex, whereas the north of Europe is somewhere that grows more uh, grain barley, rye, wheat, and that is more beer-related. And, you know, our, our historical experience in the, in, in the Middle East has been um, with the Southern Europeans to the vast majority. But if you, if you step north of the border, I mean, you know, the, you cross from France to, to Belgium, you move from wine territory to beer territory. And if you're really sophisticated in Belgium, you have some of the beautiful Trappist ales and some of the complex Belgian beers. And when you move to the south of the border into France, you have more of the wines and the complexity of wines. So beer is, to me, more complex than wine. It certainly has 30% more palate descriptors than wine. It comes from a variety of ingredients that have a, a broader spectrum on the palate and on flavor and on ar aromatics than wine. Um, Ultimately, all of alcohol on earth is a product of fermentation. 
which is the breakdown of um, sugars by yeast into alcohol and CO2. And so all alcohol on earth is either a beer or a wine. And beer is alcohol that has its sugar originating from grain, like beer and uh, sake. And wine is alcohol that has its sugars originating from fruit, like wine and cider. So in that sense, all the other alcohols like whiskey and vodka, they're kind of like a beer. They're basically a beer distilled. Yes, so vodka and whiskey actually are beers distilled. So you distill beer, you get a clear spirit, and that's your vodka. You take that vodka and you put it in a barrel over years, it transforms into your whiskey. Um, on the grape side, you distill your grapes, you get grappa, you stick the the whiskey, the the grappa in barrels, you get cognac and brandy. So all, all other derivatives are distilled from the, the basic fermentation process. Yeah, that's so interesting. So by 3000 BC, though, is when it kind of started, I guess, uh, being exported. The Babylonians were brewing, actually, I read about 20 different beer styles and exporting them uh, over a thousand kilometers to Egypt. So Egyptians were drinking beer 3000 years BC. Yeah, the, the, the pyramids were built on the back of, of um, labor and the currency of the time was beer. Well, I would imagine that that was a lot of work. And at the end of that day, when they were building the pyramids, they would have really enjoyed beer. Well, that's exactly the mistake that we have of what our perception today of beer is. So if if you go back to the original roots of, of history, the way human beings have always preserved food, calories, was, for, was uh, preserving, so pickling, mm-hmm. um, was through jams by heating them up and, and uh, uh, cooling them and preserving them as jams was through dehydration, and the final one was fermentation. You know, today it's completely normal for you to wake up in the morning, think, okay, I want to go have some mangoes. You drive down to your supermarket and you pick up a bunch of mangoes. That's not normal. Normally, mangoes grow on trees and they have a very short harvest period and then they go bad. So the way we would preserve mangoes to be consumed throughout the year was either to dehydrate them or make preserves of them or pickle them or ferment them. In fact, in the Middle Ages, it was unsafe to drink water. You could, you had a 50-50 chance of getting poisoned from drinking water because we used to throw our rubbish, do our washing, dye our leathers in, in the water, and we would drink from the river and get poisoned. The only safe consumption was to drink beer because beer in its process was boiled, thereby inadvertently killing the bacteria in it. So beer throughout history has has been this... this uh, safe um, way to preserve calories. Our consumption of beer today, ice cold from the fridge as a refreshment, is not what beer is. Beer is very complex. Some of the beers that we make are above our 14% alcohol. They they are uh, aged. I made a beer when my son was born. That, that is, uh, I made 25 bottles so that we consume one bottle every year on his birthday. Um, so beer ages in a cellar. I've had a beer that was 160 years old. Wow. So it's, it's yeah, exactly. And it, it, it's, a, it's a very complex, um, uh, it, it's, it's another piece in the orchestra whenever you're discussing flavor and when you're discussing food. Having food and wine seems to me as a very 2D, very simplistic uh, orchestra. I, I'm One of my favorite hobbies was to, 
get sommeliers and do a beer and cheese versus a wine and cheese pairing. And I can tell you, I have never lost. <laughs> That's fascinating. I'd love to try one of those. Uh, it's it's kind of unusual. You really don't hear about you know uh, beer tastings nearly as much as you hear about wine tastings, despite the fact that it's the four, fourth most uh, consumed beverage in the world. But you'd think that since it's so old, uh, there would have been a lot of um, kind of advances or uh, developments in the industry. Have there been? Is is beer very different today as it was? 15,000 years ago or 3,000 years BC? 100%. Beer is, is very different this year than it was last year. So first of all, a lot of the, the technological and scientific advances in human history have come about because of some form of beer. And by that, let me, let me be clear. Um, today, modern germ theory, modern medicine is based on germ theory because Louis Pasteur discovered bacteria. When Louis Pasteur discovered bacteria, when he was researching beer and funded by beer companies, his theory was he was trying to find out why beer um, spoiled. And when he was looking at it under a microscope, he found that beer spoiled because of bacteria. And he argued if beer was spoiling because of bacteria, if, if bacteria made beer sick, could it also do the same for humans? And by identifying bacteria, our whole philosophy towards medicine changed. So beer, modern-day refrigeration as a, more, as a means of, of, of preserving food. Refrigeration, the first cold ammonia machine, was discovered in the 1800s through funding by German immigrants into the U.S. who wanted to brew the same styles of beer that they got in Germany. But at, back at that period, the summers made it too warm for them to brew. And so they spent a ton of money funding research into artificial refrigeration. Inadvertently... Um, today, refrigeration means we can store food and we've solved much of the world's food crisis uh, questions. So beer has had an influence on human technology overall, but in of itself has changed dramatically. The early days, 15,000 BC, I would imagine beer was more of a porridge, more of a, of a, of a, a porridge style, possibly edible with, with the grains in it. Um, we don't have the introduction of hops into mass commercial beers, although we know of hops since the 1500s. They weren't massly used in beer since the, uh, except after the 1800s. Today, we have a new revolution called the craft beer revolution, which is a direct response to all these big brewers basically commoditizing beer and dumbing it down. So we've had big new style, rediscovering of styles of beer like IPAs and big new styles and interpretations of these styles like a New England IPA, for example. So beer is ever evolving, much like humans are ever evolving. So is uh, the marketing evolving? Like especially, um, you know, what we're talking about, the commoditizing. I don't know how much they do that in Europe, but certainly in America, beer brands have, you know, associated themselves with sports, with partying. Are they still doing that or are the beer brands kind of shifting? And how do you market it, if not like that, if you want to get uh, broad commercial appeal? Why would I want to get broad, broad commercial appeal? I have no interest in getting broad commercial appeal. For me, it's a very different thing. It all depends on what you want and how you define yourself in life. If you want to be the gourmet meat smith who makes fantastic burgers 
and sell to your local market the freshest, best product that you can. That is one thing. If you want to be McDonald's, then that is when you start to 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 worry about these kinds of messaging. Messaging in beer is very different. Today, we have in in Australia we have eight hundred different breweries. In the U.S., there's over eight thousand. When you take that back to 1978, there were only 40 breweries in the U.S. The average American lives within 10 kilometers of a brewery. In fact, the average American lives, I think, the new statistic is five kilometers away from the closest brewery. That means you have a local brewer who makes beer out of local ingredients, producing and responding to their local market. Rather than this mass behemoth that produces another Pepsi or Coke equivalent in beer, which is why you look at mass marketing for Anheuser-Busch in whatever form they, they make their beer or any of the other big brewers like Heineken and Carlsberg and all these idiots, they all market to sports. They never talk about their own product or they market a lifestyle as if drinking Corona Drinking a Mexican beer is somehow going to put you on the beach in the Bahamas. Excellent from choice a place of beer. You'd rather be. Yeah. Absolutely <laughs> one of the worst beers on the face of the planet. And doubly so now. I mean. Abs- yeah. I, yeah. It, I, I've never thought highly of Corona and I don't think highly of Corona even after that. Yeah. Even I don't, after the virus. I don't think your yeah. comment is going to hurt them any more than what has happened has. So, but what do you talk about, you know, Europe and, um, the U.S. What about the Middle East? Most people would not think of the Middle East as a place for beer, not being produced or consumed. Is it? And are breweries also proliferating in the Middle East? Um, they, so <laughs> proliferating, are breweries proliferating in the Middle East? When I started 961 Beer in 2006, people thought I was crazy because I took on the, the, the might of Almaza. And Almaza is really just another minor, minor, minor brand in the portfolio of Heineken that owns 300 or 500 brands. I don't even know these days. Um, it doesn't even show up on their board meeting. So Almaz is just a little brewer, much like Ahram Beverages is in Egypt, much like I can't even remember what the Jordanian uh, subsidiary of Heineken is called. So I was the first guy to actually set up an independent brewery. Sorry, Let me be accurate and give credit where credit is due. I should say I'm the second guy to set up a craft brewery in our region after the guys in Palestine, Taibi, who uh, I have kudos to them. These guys have set up a brewery in the West Bank in probably some of the most difficult um, conditions there are because of just the, the way the Israeli authorities have embargoed their supplies and all this kind of stuff. But their their focus has been on trying to make a small commercial Palestinian brewery. When I set up 961 Beer, I set up with the idea of making all these different styles of beer. So we started with a wit beer, a a porter, a red ale, a lager, and an IPA. when today I look at the Middle East and I, I look at Lebanon and there's colonial and there's uh, Elmir and there's a whole bunch of there's uh, uh, Brew Inc. and um, Vanguard, uh, Vagabond and a whole bunch of other beers. In Jordan, there's Karakel, who I helped Yazan set up. I think there is a realization that beer is deserves a place at the table, much like wine. I think there is a, 
shying away from the snobbery of the wine drinkers because of our cultural heritage and our association with France a bit. I think we, we, we've forgotten that there is food outside of that Bordeaux, uh, Burgundy area in the world. Um, I think the big problem that we face in the Middle East is a cultural problem in the sense of we've lost our roots with alcohol because of our religious experience in the Middle East. But I don't think the alcohol consumption has stopped in the Middle East. And the proof of that is just how much black market alcohol and, and uh, uh, snuck alcohol into, into even alcohol-free countries that we can see. So as far as you know, with, for example, your brand uh, that you were that you started basically at 961, are you still involved with the company, by the way? No, I've, I've sold everything I have in 961. I'm, I have not been involved with 961 for almost seven years now. So do they, as far as you know, have they been exporting it um, to any countries in the Middle East? And do you know, have you, do you have personal knowledge that there is a black market specifically for that, that brand? No, I mean, so the, when I refer to black markets, I'm talking about places like Iran, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, where, you know, the vast majority of, of beer being imported into Kurdistan is being snuck into Iran, or there's a lot of, it's rumored that Saudi Arabia is one of the highest per capita consumers of whiskey in the world, for example. So I, I, I personally am a proponent where I don't believe that prohibition works. And it's it's not just a cultural thing in the Middle East. When America tried to do prohibition, it gave rise to huge crime and Al Capone and all these gangs who were sneaking alcohol into the U.S. When the Australians back in the day tried a, a very and the British tried a very small version of temperance, where they banned alcohol consumption after six o'clock. Um, in Australia, we had something called the the, the five o'clock swell, which is basically people rushed at five o'clock after work, got completely drunk because after six they weren't allowed to be served alcohol. So prohibition doesn't work, in my opinion, in my humble opinion. We can't we can't force prohibition on people. So there is there's always been some form of alcohol in the in the Middle Eastern world. Yeah, well, it's not your opinion. I mean, it's a fact. And we know that whenever there's prohibition, there's a black market that develops and people start profiting off of, of the illegal uh, sale of those products. That's a, that's a well-known fact. So what about um, zero alcohol beer? What are your thoughts on that? Because like even uh, Heineken, I think, launched a product in 2019, at least I know in some Middle East countries, that was a 0% beer. What do you think about that? Let's not reference Heineken as being market leaders because I think Heineken are far, far from being market leaders. I mean, Leziza, which is owned by Heineken, launched a zero alcohol beer way before that even. And zero alcohol beers have been around forever. Um, and they are now getting some traction in the craft beer segment. Because people sometimes want to just drink. Again, it is an approach to what alcohol is. Not everyone who drinks beer drinks it to get drunk or drinks it to get refreshed because some of the beers, are, like we said, are better drunk at higher temperatures and are full flavored. So for that very same reason, it's it's some people are seeking flavor in beer. And some of these beers now with new brewing techniques are, are being brewed to, to be zero alcohol. Personally, I, I am, 
I haven't brewed a 0% beer. I'm not philosophically against brewing a 0% beer. I'm just, the, the world of beer is so big, I'm focused on other things at this point. Yeah. But how do you get the alcohol out? I'm just curious. There are multiple ways. You can you can either ferment in a certain technique, you can distill it out, you can uh, extract. The, the, there's lots of different, you can uh, reverse osmosis. There's multiple, multiple ways to, to, to extract alcohol out of beer. Well, I'm sure that's not what the Egyptians were drinking when they were building the pyramids. <laughs> A hundred percent. That is definitely not what the Egyptians were drinking. But I do tell you this. Um, we we think of beer as being uh, uh, an alcoholic drink that gets us drunk. I mean, up until the Industrial Revolution, up, up until Louis Pasteur really zoned, uh, honed in on, on the presence of bacteria, and we changed our medical approach. So even doctors washing their hands was not a thing until we discovered bacteria. Up until that period, Children from the age of three months on would drink beer because it was an it was a, the safest form of water. It was the safest form of calories. And beer back then was table beer. It was very low alcohol percentages. Mm. So it wasn't drunk for the purpose of getting drunk. It was drunk as a nourishment, as a as a refreshing, as a safe way to hydrate. Yeah, that's so. When were babies drinking beer? How how long um, ago? Maybe 150 years ago. Wow! But not the not we we shouldn't think of that as the beer that we drink today. Yeah, it's yeah. A, it's a it's a much lighter table beer. Yeah. No, I understand. So actually, that brings me to my next few questions, which are some of the the ideas that we have about beer, or the myths, um, and also to think of it as a nutritious thing or as a caloric uh, intake. So is there such a th scientific thing as a beer belly? No, it doesn't exist. It's, a, it's the biggest misconception, the biggest urban myth that I've ever seen. Um, yeah, there is a beer belly. If you go drink 10 liters of beer and, and stumble your way home at three o'clock and then have five shawarmas and three kebabs, yes, then it does cause you a beer belly. But I think it's more the huge alcohol intake that you have taken uh, and the food, once your appetite is open, that causes the beer belly. The idea that somehow carbonation causes a belly is, is just a joke. You, you, your body shoots out, out the, the, shoots out the gases. It's not absorbed into your body. Beer in, in its, a four or a 5% beer in a 330 ml bottle has 120 calories. There's 150 calories in each glass of wine. There's 300 calories in the same volume of orange juice and 600 calories in the same volume of milkshake. There's 150 calories in a, ca a can of Coke. So beer is actually a low calorie intake. The, the problem is with calories and beer bellies is that your belly or your body weight is a function of how many calories do you take in and how many calories do you use up? You can drink 10 bottles of wine a day. If you exercise enough and, and burn the calories, you're still going to be thin. And you can eat 10 kilos of lettuce a day. And if you don't work out, you're going to be fat. So the, the idea of a beer belly is the most idiotic concept. And I don't know why it still exists. But it's a joke. I think there's this this idea that 
some people get this belly that's not in line with the rest of their body, like they're thin, but they only have like a belly, which I think is just a natural thing that happens to some people. And people have attributed it to like drinking lots of beer. I'm not sure. It is odd. But here's another uh, myth I've heard. And I'm not sure if you can debunk it or if there have been any studies. But does beer make women's breasts bigger? <laughs> Absolutely not. I don't know. I don't know. I, uh, no, uh, I have no idea. But I, I, I just want to go back to the beer belly idea. I think what, where people feel that beer bloats them is because of the way they consume beer. So beer is a carbonated drink, like a Pepsi, like a Coke, like a, a cider, like a champagne. And if you drink beer straight from the bottle, you are basically consuming five volumes of, of uh, sorry, two and a half volumes of, of CO2. When you pour it into a glass like you do with a, with a wine or a champagne, it allows that CO2 to escape and settle. It opens up the aromatics of the beer. If you drink it straight from a can and then eat anything afterwards, that agitates in your stomach and causes a sensation of bloating. Especially when you find that beers these, these days, these mass commercial beers, have so many chemicals in them. They're made out of corn and rice and all sorts of cheap sugar adjuncts rather than expensive barley. So that amplifies that sense of bloating. Whereas if you drink a beer properly, you let the CO2 evaporate when you pour it into a glass. When you create the foam, the head, I see a lot of people trying to pour the beer without any foam. It's silly because foam is just CO2 evaporating from beer. Once you pour it properly, then it is a very soothing and comforting. There's no reason to be bloated. When it comes to breasts, I have no idea what <laughs> makes breasts bigger or smaller. <laughs> well, that means, you know, obviously, you, you maybe you weren't thinking about that last idea, but you've just made our producer <laughs> super happy because he actually said the same thing that you just did about uh, pouring the beer and letting the foam come out, which people really don't know about. And it's so interesting. Um, so you should always take a glass is what you're saying. Like this whole idea like 100%. that you're saving the environment by not taking a plastic cup. Well, I guess if you're drinking out of a plastic cup, you're probably not having a fine beer either. Um, although you never know. It's so complicated. You should never have a plastic cup. You should have a glass. You should have and a glass. not only that, you should never consume anything, not just beer, anything whatsoever out of straight out of a bottle or out of a, a can. Because you are blocking your nose. Two-thirds of your taste buds, your perception comes from your nose. When you have a cold, you don't taste. If you drink from a bottle, you close your nose. You're not drinking. You're not tasting what you're drinking. You're basically gulping it down. And that is not helpful. Whether it's, you don't drink wine from a bottle. Why do you drink beer from a bottle? Um, because it's smaller, I guess. Even a small glass of wine on the plane, you don't drink out of a bottle. You pour it into a glass. Yeah, because there's people around. No, you, you <laughs> always drink anything and everything from a glass. <laughs> that's the rule right but a plastic glass usually on the plane unless you're in first class <laughs> but um or business class so hawkers obviously um is a product that you take you know that you craft with uh with a lot of seriousness and uh, uh attention to detail obviously um you have a new uh, edition called hopefully beirut which i 
noticed you're selling online, which is a tribute to the people of Beirut who cleaned up the city after the explosion of October 4th. Um, and 100% of the proceeds are going to rebuild to help rebuild the, the city, which is really nice. Yes. That's really nice of you because you're based in Australia now. Yep, but my family is, my family is still from Beirut and I still lives in Beirut. And I am Lebanese. I am a Lebanese-Australian. Proud to be Lebanese and proud to be Australian at the same time. I am uh, extremely grateful that this country has taken me in. And I, I, I find I have two homes now, Beirut and Melbourne. Um, so the, this all came about because I, one of the reasons I moved to Australia was the political class in Lebanon. I had lost faith in their ability to run the country. I am sick of this, uh, the corruption and the sectarianism. You know, there is no no population, no sect in Lebanon that has better electricity than the next. They've all been stolen. All their wealth, all their savings has been stolen. All their all their uh, hard work has been ripped out by a bunch of corrupt politicians who are just using stupid tribal messages to split people who really have so much potential. Um, it's amazing. We have 18 million Lebanese outside of Lebanon, and we're constantly proud of how well the Lebanese outside of Lebanon do. I think it's disgraceful that we should be proud of the Lebanese outside of Lebanon. I think those Lebanese should be back in Lebanon. You know, we have this culture of the phoenix rising, and I don't want the phoenix to rise again from the ashes. I don't need the ashes. This this idea that we somehow keep rising, Beirut has come back seven times, is idiotic. We need to get a bunch of proper politicians who stop stealing our money and stop using us as pawns. It, it baffles my brain that we're waiting for the French president and the French um, uh, to, to, to do away with corruption in Lebanon. We, we, we're getting to an interim situation where we're waiting for the next American election so we see what happens with it. It's idiotic. We don't need America and Iran to get together to, for the politicians to stop stealing. And so as a Lebanese abroad, when I saw what happened, I immediately got into contact with Betel Baraka, who, who are an NGO, because I don't trust the government at all. And I wanted to see what I could do. And it's not just about giving it's not the dollar value of what you pump into the into the country it's about raising awareness so hopefully beirut we wanted to use a positive message but we also had people with broomsticks on i didn't want the phoenix rising i didn't want the glorification of what had happened in lebanon i wanted to make a point to talk about those people who with their bare hands came down to the streets and volunteered to clean up the streets because the government was so incompetent, had their, their head so far stuck up their own behind that they couldn't do anything. Well, thank you so much for speaking about that so eloquently and for putting a product out there that keeps the conversation going um, in such a meaning, meaningful way. Um, where can people buy it? Unfortunately, we can only ship it to Australia right now and we've almost sold out of it. So we, I think... I think today we sold out of it. Um, it's it's not your typical easy drinking beer. I'm just warning people. It's a 10.5% barley wine, uh, which is infused with almonds, um, hazelnuts, uh, uh, orange blossom, and lactose. And it's inspired from baklava. Um, and it's it's just delicious. 
it's absolutely delicious. And all the funds have, uh, we've already donated uh, $10,000 and we'll probably be don- making another donation uh, now that the sales have, have been done um, to Beit Baraki. But for us, it was a little thing that we could do, but we got um, close to 3,000, 4,000 cans of this beer into the hands of people that kept the conversation going. And, and for a long time, the beer drinking community here in Australia was engaged, was aware of what happened in Lebanon. And a lot of them had personally asked me or jumped online and, and donated directly beyond just the beer. Yeah, so people can still do that. Uh, but it sounds so yes. delicious. I wish that you would keep producing it because I know a lot of people would love to try it and to contribute to to that effort. So, well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And I wish you the best of luck uh, with uh, Hawkers and all your other projects. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And, and good luck to all the Lebanese. Yes, we're going to need it. Thanks for listening today. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to hit that subscribe button as that helps our show climb to the top. Can't wait to see you again soon.